0: Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden. I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be all right well hello and welcome to another edition of the do good to lead well podcast series And my name is Craig Dowden and really excited to have this conversation this morning. Uh, As listeners know that uh, the key, key element, the key focus in this podcast series is to explore the science and practice of positive leadership and how we can take the really compelling research and translate it into everyday practice, both at a leadership team and organizational level. And so couldn't have asked for a better person to be, and a better thought leader and expert to join us today than John Clifton, uh, the CEO of the Gallup organization. So for all, I'm sure all of you know, a global analytics and advice firm. So Mr. Clifton's mission is to build the world's official statistics for everything related to work and life, to put people worldwide in touch with their strengths and to help organizations create thriving workplaces. And Absolutely, for me, uh, uh, love that that vision and mission uh, personally. Mr. Clifton is a non-resident senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, serves on the boards of directors for Gallup and Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, and has also served on a variety of boards like Meridian International Center, Streetwise Partners, Because of his expertise, Mr. Clifton is often called on to speak about Gallup's research to international associations, including the United Nations, the International Association for Official Statistics, and the World Bank. He has also been interviewed on BBC News, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and Al Jazeera, and he has testified in front of the U.S. Congress on the State of American Small Business and Entrepreneurship. He received a bachelor's degree in political science and history from the University of Michigan and a Juris doctorate in international law from the University of Nebraska. And he was also awarded an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Midland University. And that's just the, the top of it. And I've read his recent book, Blind Spot. The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It, and I—it it is a page-turner. I couldn't put it down. It was absolutely engaging. So, John, welcome welcome to the program.
1: Greg, thank you for having me.
0: Well, and, and really want to dig into this, and I love, there are so many things that I love about this book, and people are going to extract out of it not only the evidence-based perspective that you took, also how you translated them into really tangible insights. So for, for people, what was your primary motivation in writing this book? The big idea behind it you wanted to get across?
1: The big idea we wanted to get across is this trend that we found in our database that has this very concern and it's what we call the global rise of unhappiness. And when I speak of happiness at that particular moment, what I mean is stress, sadness, anger, pain, and worry. Throughout history, or at least the past hundred years, economists and statisticians have perfected counting everything. They uh, can put a number to the size of every single economy. Um, We count every single job that people have. We even know how many uh, emissions have been uh, or, or carbon emissions there are in the environment, but what we don't know is how people feel. So Gallup wanted to fix that. And the only way to understand how people feel is to ask them how much stress they experience, how much anger they experience. And those five emotions that we started tracking were increasing and have been increasing for a decade straight. And that has us really concerned, And it's something that we wanted to get to every single world leader.
0: Well, and I I, there's so much, and 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 love that answer, and thank you. And and one of the points you made early on, because I think uh, this was so for me right away, very it 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 was intuitive and eye opening. Because you said we can't blame the rise in global unhappiness on the pandemic, and a lot of people kind of make that link. So, can you talk to us a little bit more about that?
1: Well, I want to say that we can't blame it on the pandemic alone.
0: Right. Great. Yep.
1: Because the pandemic the war in Ukraine, the war in Ethiopia, what's happening in Myanmar, uh, rising global inflation. I think the UK has it the worst of all rich countries. All of those things are making people's lives worse. But the global rise in misery started before the pandemic swept the world in 2020. And when we first came out with our report on the global rise of unhappiness, we launched it somewhere mid 2020. And when we did so, we sent it to the media, we sent it to a number of leaders and they said, well, gee, Gallup, why is this a surprise that you have record sadness, anger, worry, stress, <laughs> pain? There's a global pandemic that's uh, you know, hurting us all. And we said, well, this is why leaders have missed it because the rise happened eight years before mm-hmm. um, and the underlying drivers weren't the pandemic beforehand. So again, while the pandemic accelerated a lot of pain that already existed in the world, Um, this global rise of unhappiness was coming for eight years before it and that's why we thought it was so important to write a book about it because we thought it might finally get more the attention that it deserves.
0: Mm. Well and it's such a great point and and another one that really stuck with me early on is you talk about well-being inequality and there's so much emphasis on income inequality and as you say and I love how you take what we routinely talk about and then say hey look over here this is it's striking that we don't can you share more about what well-being inequality is and the trends on that because i was reading that you just go wow we ask a
1: question in the 140 countries where we conduct surveys every year the first question we ask people is rate your life on a scale of zero to 10 10 is the best imaginable life zero is the worst amount where do you stand today 15 years ago when we first did this we found that about three and a half percent of people said my life is a perfect ten, and we found that about 1.7 what maybe 1.3 percent said my life is a zero my life cannot get any worse we even had a gentleman in lebanon we said to him you know how is your life going and he said my life is uh, the arabic word for zeft, uh which is it's like tar it can't get any darker fast forward 15 years today And the people who say they have a perfect life more than doubled, it's almost 8%. And the people who said they have the worst imaginable life more than quadrupled, it's also almost 8%. So when you start to isolate the people who are rating their lives the best and the people who are rating their lives the worst, you can see a widening inequality in terms of uh, how people see their lives. And if you isolate the people who rate their lives the worst over the past 15 years, they're the people that are most likely to report the most stress sadness anger physical pain and worry and that's a real problem
0: absolutely and and that when you, and you and and again i just love the evidence based perspective that you take to it and then to compare the contrast hey the people who see it their best lives if you will they're living at the it doubled and the quadrupling. And you really just get to see, and if you look around in terms of just what's happening in the world, in our communities, you can get that sense of that anger, that frustration. So just really appreciated uh, that point. And so uh, another thing that I, that I, that I want to explore with you is, I love you had a chapter titled, What Economic Models Miss? Because <laughs> we so often, you know, relate back or refer back, and I just thought it was fantastic how you deconstructed that hey some of these is some we need to broaden our perspective so can you talk a little bit more about that well i think one of the most famous
1: lines in american political history is the line that says it's the economy stupid <laughs> that was uh bill clinton's advisor the raging cajun james carvel that made that particular quote and my question is is it true right now in all of the literature we know that You know, in answer to the question, does money buy happiness? What we can say for sure is that um, money may not buy happiness, but it's hard to be happy without it. And you do see examples, and I show the examples in the book where there was a growing economy, yet when you ask people how their lives were going, it was crashing. Now, it's not to say necessarily, and I show examples where it didn't necessarily predict a particular revolution, uh a leader being ousted from office in, in a democratic country. Um, but what it says is that the indicators of kind of traditional economic indicators, they don't exist to tell us whether or not people's lives are getting better. Mm-hmm. They exist to tell us whether or not the economy is getting bigger or smaller. We need better indicators to understand how people's lives are going. And one of the single best ways to do that is to ask the best experts themselves on people's lives, which are the people themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I and I I love that. And one of the themes throughout the book, and I think it's so it's such it was a powerful takeaway for me, I just loved how you did it was that, you know, rather than accept a statement or an idea as a truth. Hey, let's explore the data. (laughs) And let's have a look at this. Let's take a more dispassionate objective analysis of what's going on, and to have the courage to test our assumptions, because I think that's essential as we continue to pivot and learn and grow. And, and you talked about people's happiness. And so it's something again, I, there's another, I loved your chapter titles, so many of them. And one of them is how in the world do we measure happiness? I love the multiple layers of that because you literally measure happiness around the world. How does Gallup approach that? And, and, and what, what do those, what are the indicators that you use to provide that assessment? Measuring happiness is a very, very difficult
1: challenge. I mean, the first thing that people I think ask is, well, do you just ask people, are you happy? And we can't, because when we conduct our surveys, uh, remember, we're doing 140 countries, 40 of them are on the phone, uh, and another 100 of them are face-to-face interviews. And it means that we need to do translations. I think at one point we had done like 100. 70 different languages and dialects if five percent of a country speaks a particular language we make it available in that language and i don't mean to make this sound like a bumper sticker but happiness doesn't translate right so there are different aspects of happiness based on different uh cultures based on different languages so we had to find words that do have cross-cultural compar- comparability you can ask anything you want in a survey You can ask about love, for example, we tried it. And you probably remember this in the book as well. We failed miserably because there are some cultures when we said, did you uh, have a lot of love yesterday in a Western context? A lot of people interpreted it as, well, yeah, I, I, you know, my mom called me, told me she loved me. So I did. In some cultures, they thought it as a physical aspect. So you Mm -hmm. can ask it, but you can't compare the results of those two particular countries. So what we sought to do was, first of all, determine what does it mean to measure a great life? And that caused us to interview a lot of the world's uh, top experts, Ed Diener, who's one of the most practiced on this particular topic. He passed away a few years ago. He's a Gallup senior advisor, uh, Nobel laureate Danny, Danny Kahneman, Nobel laureate Angus Deaton. Um, but we've had other senior advisors like Carol Graham is one of the top uh, economists in the world and also one of the foremost experts on this. She was uh, grew up in Latin America. Deepak Chopra is another one who we asked his advice on what should we be asking And we ultimately landed on two constructs. A great life is how you see your life and how you live your life. Mm -hmm. In terms of how you see your life, that's when we ask people to just rate your life on a scale of zero to 10. That one is more holistic in the remembering mind in sort of uh, behavioral economics and what Danny Kahneman says. And so it makes you look at sort of your entire life, your career, your family, et cetera. The other side of what we measure is how you experience life. How much fun do you have? How much anger do you have? Now in an ideal world, if technology would allow us, we would have a buzzer on everybody's pocket in the world, buzz them probably every thirty minutes, and then tell them to follow a survey, or we would tell them to spit in a test tube, and we would actually test to see how much stress that they're that they're feeling. Um, we don't have that luxury right now. Survey research is the closest thing that we can do. We've also done testing, you know, to compare it to whether or not somebody has spit into a test tube. So, does somebody know if they're stressed? They actually do. I mean, it's not it's not entirely, uh, it's it's quite accurate. So. Um, we asked two things, five on the negative side, five on the positive side. And on the negative side, as I mentioned earlier, we asked about anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry. Um, And then on the positive side, we asked things about whether or not people were treated with respect, whether or not they felt well rested, whether or not they felt enjoyment, laughed and smiled a lot, or whether they had intellectual stimulation, which we say learn or do something interesting. Mm -hmm. And so we have to measure all of them separately because they measure such different constructs and they all have different drivers. For example, on life ratings, what we call uh, how you see your life, that one is heavily dependent on money. The more money you make, on average, the higher you rate your life. When it comes to stress and joy, more money you make doesn't always necessarily increase that. In fact, joy is heavily driven by the relationships that you have with family and friends. The more time that you spend with them, the more likely you are to drive that. And by the way, the countries in the world that are the most likely to have fun is Latin America. And right. when you hear of the, the world famous happiness index, that is actually Gallup's data, um, it may be mislabeled. Now, I say that and I address this in the book mm-hmm. because they use our life evaluation, our life rating data, which is rate of life on a scale of zero to 10. Danes, Finns rate their lives the highest, uh, Haitians, um, people that live in the Palestinian territories, Democratic Republic of Congo, they rate their lives the worst. And so they're probably the most and least content people in the world, maybe not the happiest. So those are the two constructs. And that's how we measure it.
0: Well, and I have to say and and acknowledge that, that in the book, that is one of the most thoughtful, straightforward analysis of the link between money and happiness. Because to me, as reading through that And how you position it as the C versus experiential. So how you experience it. Because a lot of times, well, of course, money buys you happiness. And I love how you're able to provide those two elements, those two aspects of it. You could see, hey, if I'm making a lot of money, I might see my life being in a certain way. And, And that was a really powerful link for me that I thought, what a great point that you're making and then also experientially, it doesn't have so because sometimes you get that conflicting perspective on things. So I just want I, I just thought that was so well done. And and I for that chapter and that section alone, for people, I would say it's valuable to pick it up to really appreciate how you how you broke that and, and broke that down. And so what you know, how are you able to to really tease that apart? Because I think that is an exceptional insight that you've provided, John. Well, we built this on the foundation
1: of a lot of individuals who have studied this before. So Mm -hmm. Ed actually once previously come up with a very similar framework. And George Gallup has been testing a lot of these items too, back in the 50s. Uh, One of the stories that I talk about is, it was the 1930s where George Gallup rose to fame. Um, He had correctly predicted the election between FDR and Alf Landon. Literary Digest said that Uh, Alf Landon would win because they used what's called a convenience sample. I think they uh, interviewed half a million to a million of their customers and said, send in a postcard on who you're going to vote for. And they'd accidentally skewed toward their uh, readership group, their subscribers, which skewed a little bit more wealthy. Dr. Gallup used probability-based sampling, and he said, no, actually, it's going to be FDR that wins. Um, and you know that's what put him on the cover of Time, and, and he's very passionate about politics. And in fact, mm. he's the one that started asking about presidential approval ratings, and we've carried that on still to this day. But mm. in an interview in the 1950s, famous broadcast journalist Edward R. Murrow is doing an interview with him. Actually, has a cigarette uh, in, in the interview. It's so dated. Yeah. And he says to him, I don't know if it was through a plume of smoke, but he says to him, uh, "Dr. Gallup, of all the things that you." studied what is it that interests you the most and George Gallup says back to him actually happiness and launches into a happiness survey that he had done here in the United States Um, and you know he had he had kind of scratched the surface so some of the things that he was talking about are some things that we're kind of familiar with today Uh, but what I don't think he had realized is that he had started working on a very profound sort of uh, research topic which is understanding how people's lives are going so Mm -hmm. we're really proud of the fact that we've uh, not just continue to do this in the United States but now we've done it in almost 170 countries today. Wow.
0: Well and 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 again for me one of the things that I really appreciate about you and the book John and 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 the Gallup organization is that I really got the sense of the joy of intellectual pursuit. So it wasn't about hey I'm here to add, I'm here to do the best job and linking it back to the mission statement like what drives you you really get that through the book. So I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that. Another point I love that you made, because you you really tackled head on where people go, well, do people really know how happy they are or how reliable are they in their responses? And once again, I think you did a fantastic job of unpacking that. So can you share a little bit more, maybe for skeptics going, well, you know, can people really know this or how reliable are these data? Um, please, yeah, please share.
1: Well, I start that off with a story because about 10 years ago, we had a project with an organization and they had brought in a professor. We were going to do some studies in Africa. And I was encouraging them that as part of our study that we ask about how people's lives are going, that we actually ask the Africans that we interview, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10. Tell us about how much stress you have. And they didn't want to do it. <laughs> and I, got, I think I might have gotten a little annoying about it. Um, and I said, hey, you know, let's you know, can we talk about this one more time? And, and they said, let's let's table that. We don't want to do it. And I'll never forget because the professor looked at me and he said, hey, John, the reason we don't want to do it is because we want to make sure that Africans don't say they're happier than they really are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it kind of threw me for a second because what does that mean? And mm-hmm. if Africans don't know how happy they are, who does? And also, why do we have this notion that somebody cannot truly describe how their life is going. And so he and I had a nice chat after that, because I said to him, um, I don't know if you're, I I didn't say this, but I was thinking at least that I don't know if he's wrong on moral or philosophical grounds. But I said said to him, you you know, you are wrong on statistical grounds. And the only reason to say that is because what I, my hunch is, is that he believes that, um, you know, that there are poor people that he doesn't want them to say that they have the best lives in the world. And the Mm. reality is they don't. And so you can see it very very clearly when you ask people to rate their lives on a scale of zero to 10. The countries that you think would say that they rate their lives the highest, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, they're at the top. And the countries where you think people have it the most difficult right now, like Afghanistan, where in 2000 interviews that we did face-to-face, the Taliban allowed us to have women interview women while the United States forces were leaving, uh, and not a single person, in that entire survey, said my life is a ten. So mm. not only do you have this sort of face validation on the data, um, you can also look at it against um, you know kind of traditional economic indicators that in rich places people rate their lives higher, and in poor places and where people are struggling, uh, you know they they don't. And so this is why I think it is critical to do this. Um, and another thing is there's other research where, for example, Craig, if um, if, so if we said rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, you privately write it down. If we go around and ask your family and friends to say, how's how would Craig rate how his life is going? That's actually very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, because somebody might say, well, Craig's struggling, he's not going to admit it to a complete stranger, a Gallup interviewer. For people who say that, they've never done interviews. <laughs> the, the candor that people have to a complete interview is really mind boggling. I mean, if you just sit down and just start talking to somebody, um, they really have a lot to say. You can ask them about the government, you can ask them about the community, you can ask them about their lives. Um, our struggle is in the United States. Our response rates are awful. People don't want to get phone calls. They just don't. We're trying to tweak new methodologies to figure out how to do more on the web. But if you go into places where you know, phone penetration isn't as high, you do face-to-face interviewing, our response rates are 70, 80, sometimes even higher. Uh, in fact, we'll have other people in the community say, Why, when can I be interviewed next? Wow. Uh, and, you know, as part of a random selection procedure, they can't be because it skews the data. If it's the tribal chief, we'll let them do it. We end up having to throw it out. Nice. Uh, but again, you can see that people are so willing to share their thoughts mm-hmm. on virtually everything. Um, and I think that's just kind of one of the most amazing parts about survey research. And again, anyone who reads this book, and uh, Craig, it makes it means a lot to me and everybody at Gallup that you did. But this is literally 5 million people who shared how they feel about their own lives and what they think about the world. And that's why it's so important for us to have leaders read this.
0: No, absolutely. Well, and, and, uh, and I love that you, to echo that point, I love that your last chapter is really around those 5 million conversations, right? And, and acknowledging that. And the other thing, a really powerful insight for me, John, on top of everything you just shared was also the fact that, hey, how we feel, how we see our lives, how we experience them has a profound impact on the choices we make and how we show. And I just love that linkage because you, of course it does. And without it stating explicitly though, I just thought it was really great that you, that you draw our attention to it. And, and and I do, this this conversation is flying by. So thank you for all of the insights Uh, talking about, uh, because one of the things that, that we're seeing now is around quiet quitting and the great resignation. And so, you know, the theme of this podcast is around positive leadership. And I love that you tackle, uh, you have a chapter there that we've got a global great jobs crisis and you draw attention to that. So can you share more about, you know, give us a sense of that data because it is really sobering data. And then also for leaders and aspiring leaders who are listening, you know, what are some of the lessons we can learn as you talk about Uh, in these insights so that we can change, you know, we can change that trajectory.
1: Yeah, there's one challenge that I have with our, the world's way to sort of understand the global jobs situation, which is the unemployment figure. Because unemployment in 2019 globally, according to the ILL, it's about 5.5%. If you ask any economist and say, um, what is the natural rate of unemployment, many of them will actually say it's 5%. So from that perspective, you would say, well, we don't, do we not have a global jobs problem? When the pandemic hit, we know the amount of people that were badly hurt in the workplace. They either lost their jobs um, or, you know, were temporarily laid off, whatever the case, but unemployment only went to six and a half percent. So really, is that the only damage COVID did to the global job situation? The problem is how it's measured. And so a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that when you say to them, how is unemployment quantified, they think it's some sort of headcount or that you know companies and organizations send in their payroll. It's not. It's a massive survey. So just like we ask, how's your life going? Governments ask, do you have a job? It usually takes them an hour to do that. Um, but the problem with the survey is what it is capturing is the amount of people who want work that have no work whatsoever. Meaning if you have one hour of work, you are not unemployed. And if you are self-employed out of necessity, not self-employed because you want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or because you stand for freedom and want to be your own boss and you have a great restaurant in town and that's exactly what you want your life to be, that's not the reality of most of the self-employed globally. Um, They live on less than $2 a day and we can see on their well-being that their lives are not good and they are working out of desperation. Um, And so one of the challenges is just how do we measure it? And right now we're measuring it through this uh, lowest common denominator of what we hold leaders accountable to, which is who has no work whatsoever. The recommendation in the book is that we need to flip that on its head. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is, again, instead of holding leaders uh, accountable to the lowest common denominator, let's create a new metric which is the percent of great jobs. Now, how do we accomplish something like that? And in the book, I'm clear about this, which is, this may not be perfect, but it's close. And I hope this starts a conversation about what could we do next, which is a great job is a steady paycheck, steady hours, plus a subjective component, whether or not you are thriving at work. We know uh, there's one analysis that says that we spend 115,000 hours of our entire life, which is exactly 13 years uh, working. The only thing we do more is sleep. I replicated the analysis and did a lower end on the hours, came out with about 83, 85,000 hours. Regardless, that's a lot of life. And if most of your life is spent being completely miserable from a subjective standpoint, it actually goes into your personal life. We asked a bunch of people who are truly miserable at work, does the stress from work ever negatively impact your relationships with your family and friends? Uh, Far more than half of them said, absolutely. So this idea about work-life balance, although our hearts are in the right place about it, the idea that human beings can practice compartmentalization and that if your boss berated you earlier in the day that you therefore don't take that emotional baggage home with you is ridiculous. Just yeah. because they can't email you at five, you know, after five o'clock, doesn't mean that you, you you still aren't miserable. And so we need to improve this sort of subjective aspect of work. now. I had somebody recently say, happiness is a joke in the workplace. Tell them to get shut up and get back to work. The challenge is, is they don't fully appreciate what it means. And a lot of times in kind of the old verbiage, it's called engagement. It means these really straightforward ideas like uh, not, are you happy at work? The question is, do you know what's expected of you at work? Right Mm -hmm. now, Gallup finds that half of employees all over the world don't fully agree in terms of Knowing what's expected of them. Now, imagine what we could do for human productivity if we helped everyone iron that out. But number two, think about how much madness is created that people mm-hmm. show up to work and they don't even know what they're fully supposed to do, and then they have uh, uh, you know a manager that's upset with them. And they're like, well, "You didn't even fully tell me." And so it's issues like that. And I think kind of at the pinnacle, once you know development, once you have people, you know, people that are recognizing you for good work, you get along with your colleagues. I think the pinnacle is having the opportunity to do what you do best. Now, Mm -hmm. philosophers, you know, back to Aristotle, I think Peter Drucker would say this. And Aristotle's concept was, everybody always tells me it's wrong. So I'm going to say both words, eudaimonia or eudaimonia. um, And you realizing your purpose. Um, That hasn't changed for 2000 years. And if we were so good in the workplace, why aren't we delivering on it? And we only find that a third of employees globally with full-time work say that they have the opportunity to do what they do best. Mm. Um, so this is a real gap in workplaces. And I and I and everyone at Gallup believes that one of the biggest solutions to the rise of global misery is to make better workplaces, precisely because we just spend so much of our life at work.
0: Absolutely. Well, and there's so much there that you shared and thank you. And, and it just triggers with me on the expectation side. I mean, in my coaching work, I do a lot of coaching work. And how many conversations have I had where people are going, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Or the, 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 the executive is going, why don't, why isn't Craig doing what I asked? And then I'm like, well, have you sat down and what, you know, have you agreed on what the expectations are, what the priorities are, or someone comes in and just fires fires out five new things to add to the project list with no kind of, Hey, this is where they fit in or here's what you need to let go of. So I just love what you're talking about, John. And then the, the piece around the rational aspects of, of a job, if you will, and then the experiential—that subjective, like how how engaged and 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 how emotionally connected you are to your organization—and and and you talk in the book about how people leave because of the the behaviors of the manager. So I think so so powerful, and 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 love everything that uh, th- that you talk about um, on that in the book. Another idea I wanted to explore with you because I thought it was because you talked about the the five elements of a great life. And then you talk about the importance of community. Um, and one of the, what I thought was interesting, uh, and I was curious to get your take on this. One of the t- you talk about broken communities. And one of the factors behind that is fear. And, and, and you talk about it in a really compelling way in a global context. I was thinking about it in the context of organizations and we hear a lot about psychological safety and feel, you know, so is that a, a bridge too far that I'm making there? Or do you see fear uh, connecting within organizational life and for leaders as well?
1: No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we we were in, in the global survey, we are trying to ask about, you know, physical safety within communities. But to your point about fear, we, we did one of the biggest studies ever on burnout in the United States. Mm. And a lot of times when we're having this conversation about burnout, what's the biggest driver of burnout? Well, if you, if you give that pop quiz to an executive, their number one response will be too many hours worked. It's not true. It is one, one of the biggest drivers. The biggest driver is unfair treatment at work. That drives people insane. Mm-hmm. And one of the indicators, although it might not be directly fear related, um, they, they certainly, you know would slightly be, but is respect. You know, if, if we were automatons, whether or not you're treated with respect would not matter because we'd be robots, but we're not. And to your point, uh, how we feel impacts the decisions that we make. Uh, psychology has known this for years. Uh, And because of people like Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, uh, you know, psychologists kind of could nudge economists and say, you know, we're not such rational actors as you once thought. So the decisions we make are actually largely emotional, not rational. Um, And so, you know, if you get treated with disrespect, it causes you to care less about your work product. It Mm -hmm. causes you to care less about what you do for that organization. And probably the worst part is it causes you to care less about your interactions with your customers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this is not only uh, an employee slash worker issue, this is also an employee, or excuse me, a customer issue. We have, uh, we were aware of a story at a bakery. And this was a relatively successful bakery at the time. Um, But one of their biggest customers would spend a hundred bucks a month. That's a lot for, you know, somebody that's making... Cupcakes, so it's twelve hundred bucks a year at least, um and nothing changed. The ingredients didn't change. The location didn't change. The length of time in the line didn't change. Um, the box that it served in didn't change. Nothing, except for one thing: they treated her with disrespect.
0: And mm. She never
1: went back. Right. now, if we were not emotional beings, the fact that they disrespected her wouldn't matter because she would still go back and use their products. Yet it meant everything to her. Um, right. And I'll just say this last thing because I still feel that too many executives, and I mean this, executives and companies and also public sector leaders continue to fail to realize how much emotions play in our everyday decision making and even, according to some studies, our cognition. Um, and, I, and I think it's something that they just need to fundamentally think more about um, because we're not robots. We are Largely emotional actors oh and the thing i was going to say is mark manson you know the the author you may have had him on uh, in your podcast but uh he wrote in on his i think it's his second book you know the everything is a uh, book about hope right as our brain is like a car and there are two people in the front seat there's the emotional mind and the rational mind
0: mm-hmm. and he
1: poses the question who's driving now most people are at least economists for you know since probably Adam Smith in 1776 would say, well, it's the rational mind. The truth is it's not. It's the emotional mind that's driving. But here's the biggest kicker. Not only is the emotional mind driving, the rational mind rides shotgun and gives the emotional mind the information as to justify why the decision that the brain is making is the right decision. That's really fascinating to me. And it's also fascinating to me why. So many leaders fail to use this sort of emotional economy within their organization, and to do it at a macro level for leaders.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love everything you're saying, and 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 it's particularly on the emotional part, and and our experience as human beings. It's it's integral to who we are, and uh, and this could be a whole other conversation. And I know we're almost at time, and I, and I love that you draw attention to that, and that work-life balance and we don't compartmentalize and it also reminds me of some of the classic psychological research around once we start turning off our emotions it's not just in one like it generalizes across there's a huge risk factor and i and and that whole expression well it's not personal it's business no we are human beings that's how we are that's how we relate and it's just not a well to your point the rational and let's just think through this uh, so the, the one final question I want to ask, because we're almost again respecting your time. This has just been absolutely not only just data rich, insight rich for me, and I'm sure everyone here. Um I-, I love that you close the book around well, what can people do? So hey, here's a roadmap, and you talk particularly around private sector leaders, um, and and the importance of listening. And you really take what I love about what you did, John, is take a really broad approach and and challenge our assumptions about well who should we listen to so can you share that that idea because i think it's such a compelling uh, insight
1: you know of all the big problems that we have in the world from covid to the to the war in ukraine to the war in ethiopia to rising inflation i think one of the other global crises that we're experiencing is this failure to listen and we are in no shortage of a world trying to be heard i mean Ever since, uh, you know, I think it was in the, in the 15th century where we had the, started with the press, then we, you know, moved a couple hundred late, years later when Marconi shot the first radio signal across continents. And I think today, you know, it's something like 500 million tweets are sent and I, I don't know, five, some billions of emails are sent. I mean, humanity is dying to be heard, but are, are, is someone listening? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one of the challenges is there are a lot of leaders uh, within organizations or even in the public sector that just fail to do that. And a lot of times this is about a dialogue, especially within organizations, because one of the questions that Gallup asks in every one of our workplace surveys, uh, and we ask this of employees is, does your opinion count? We didn't say, did someone act based on what you recommended? Because let's be real, even if you're a leader, even if you're Whoever you are, just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you're right. But someone mm-hmm. should just dis- ta- have a discussion with you about what that idea is and can we make things better. And the other thing is, is if somebody, if an organization says, "Now nah, we excel at this, we're killing it, um, then let me ask you this. One of the questions we ask is, do you have the materials and things you need to do your job effectively? When we bring that to organizations, they're like, I don't want to ask that. They're going to want volleyball courts or they want to decide what kind of meat to serve in the cafeteria not usually the case we worked with the manufacturing firm and what the manufacturing what what the employees were saying was we want gloves that fit can you right. imagine that we want gloves that yeah. fit you're already buying the gloves why don't you just talk to them about the gloves that fit <laughs> so you know now it's a work uh, uh, there's a safety issue that's going on but the people who had the best knowledge on it were the people that were wearing the gloves and so w- we all need to take up our ability to listen We need to do it with our our employees, our suppliers, our customers, our communities, but especially each other.
0: Well, what an amazing uh, close on this, John, and could not agree more. And I love your point about listening. And, and there's so much talking happening and people desiring to be heard. And I often wonder, so who's, who's listening to this and your story just really triggered within me, there was a CEO that I was speaking with, and then he was commenting on how there were delays in the processing time. And so then he went out and did site visits. And the challenge was they had broken printers, like the printers would break down. And exactly to your point, it was like, it took, it was such a a nominal cost and everyone was thrilled. And as opposed to going, well, what's wrong with you, John? Why aren't you producing? And, and I love that you're saying, how about we listen? How about we experience? Why, about, why not express a little bit of curiosity around this? So uh, before we close, again, thank you so, so much. Your your schedule is just, I'm sure, overflowing if we were had a screen share. So thank you for this. Any final words, ways people can, I cannot recommend your book. Uh, a higher, um, more highly. Uh, any other final thoughts for, for listeners and people to track you and, and what you're doing and who you are?
1: Well our mission at Gallup, uh, at least one of them at the very beginning, or it always has been for about 80 years, is helping people be heard. Mm-hmm. And so this book that we have is represents the voice of five million people that we interviewed as part of this project. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to you because you are this is written for leaders like you. Um, and thank you to you for being one of the leaders that's listening to these 5 million voices that represent ultimately 8 billion voices, uh, and thank you to anyone else who takes an interest in this because all these people that have uh, you know, lent their voice to us for this research uh, have the right to be heard, so thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. And, and, and again, I want to acknowledge your authenticity, John, it comes through in the pages of the book, and you read books different times and have different and uh, it was one of the many reasons I was really excited to speak with you because I really get uh, a, a a pure sense of purpose around hey let's just let's approach things let's explore things and figure it out together so i uh, really appreciated that perspective and it made the book uh, on top of the uh the enjoyment of it just extra extra uh, enjoyable shall we say so
1: a lot of people said back to me when they would when they read it and they said i can really hear your voice in it like i can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. a unusual style craig so uh Uh, thanks for thanks for appreciating that
0: (laughs) yeah yeah no absolutely well i think back again being heard and, and showing up in our authentic selves uh that's an important that's a definitely a passion of mine so uh thank you so so much and thank you everybody for tuning in and uh again please go pick up the book uh john's book blind spots the global rise of unhappiness and how leaders missed it you will get so much out of it and uh looking forward to seeing you on the next episode bye for now Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.